Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Welcome to another episode of the Publicly Challenged Podcast, and this time, it's not me and Luke, it's just me. And I'm here with Tom Wessels. And uh, Tom Wessels, you are an absolutely inspiring individual to me. I cannot understate this. I've um, been following you for years, and I'm blown away by the amount of knowledge you have. So um, please, for those of you, or for those of us who don't know who you are, please introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Okay. Well, I, I guess um, I'm a terrestrial ecologist, which means I'm interested in land-based ecosystems. So I'm, I think I'm best known for my work with forest ecosystems, but I have a strong interest in deserts and alpine and Arctic ecosystems. Um, I am a former graduate school academic. Um, and I guess um, even though I was trained to do ecological research, the focus of much of my work, most of my work in graduate school was just actually teaching. I loved the teaching and I was at an institution that valued that. So I invested myself in it. And I see wow. the books I've written as sort of an extension of the teaching. Yeah, well, you you are an amazing teacher. And some of the, um, for those that uh, would like to maybe pause this and then go watch some of his videos, uh, they're, they're on the uh, YouTube channel. I believe it's called New England Forests, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you could just search on YouTube, Tom Wessels. Um, either way, they're amazing. And, and you go through and... Um, I'm actually like mind blown by the things that you can deduce from looking at a, at a landscape. Um, if you could just like really quickly uh, just summarize like what sorts of things that you can um, figure out just by looking at a landscape. 
Yeah, so I call the process forest forensics because it's not unlike going into a crime scene and gleaning it to find evidence to explain what happened there. Um, and so I do it with interpreting forest histories uh, so I can tell uh, if an area that's now forested was once agricultural land. Um, not only that, I can tell if it was formerly a crop field or a hay field or a pasture. I can determine when it was abandoned to grow back to forest. Um, in terms of logging, I can tell how many times a forest has been logged. I can date those logging events. Uh, same thing with wind disturbances. Uh, if there's multiple wind disturbances, I can usually pin down the type of storm and pretty come pretty close to a guess on the date. Uh, and as well with fire as well. So it's a matter of um, sort of just looking at a forest and and what I first do is I'm just wandering through a forest. I'm just looking to see if there's changes in forest composition or structure. And then that gets me thinking about, all right, there's something going on here. Uh, if it's a change in forest structure, you know, sizes of trees, density of trees, then I'm I know I'm looking at different disturbance histories. So then I start gleaning the site for evidence to try to figure out, all right, what am I seeing? So that's sort of the process. Yeah. Oh. That's that's so amazing. Um, one thing that maybe I uh, I haven't ever seen you talk about, but that interests me is um, the meandering of rivers, uh -huh. and and um, how rivers can change place over time. And um, there's a kind of dramatic example by me um, where there's clearly a um, a big sharp cliff sort of thing, but then the river is is uh or they i guess it's a creek now but the creek is a good hundred feet away from that spot but you can tell that at one point in time it probably did go through there and um erode that whole bank off yeah and big rivers they as they meander can really create large floodplain areas that uh you know can stretch a good half mile a mile or more on each side of the river so they can really get to be quite dramatic Wow. Um, so what what sort of things would you look for if you were to uh, be looking for like a, a, a the place that a river had been? Like what things would you look for? No, I mean, you know, if you know, so rivers, if they're like on a steep grade, just down cut pretty straight away. But when they get onto lower grades, then they start meandering. And so you're looking for these meander turns, like you said, in that bank. I'm sure that mm. when you look at that bank, you were probably seeing a turn to it. They're often, you know, mm -hmm. when they're, they're doing that, that's where they're eroding the most, when they're making a turn. Um, but you can also look for oxbows. These are sort of, mm -hmm. you know, half-moon-shaped bodies of water that used to be the channel of the river, but then got blocked off by a flood event and separated as the river moved away. So those are just two things you can look for. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, and and then, you know, because this is a, a hunting podcast, I can't, I can't help but... Um, bring up or hunting and foraging podcast i can't help but bring up uh, beavers and um they're what they've done to the landscape and um I i'm curious what you think may have happened as a result of the beaver fever as we could call it um how was our landscape before beaver fever and then uh how how did it change when we had less beavers on the landscape uh it was dramatically different uh before the extirpation of beavers they are without a doubt our mammal in North America that, other than humans, alters uh, the landscape quite dramatically. Um, 
And nowadays we could benefit from them as we're getting all these flood events. And one thing beavers do is they control water and they really restrict floodwaters. They create these wetlands that are huge sponges that can absorb a lot of water. Uh, as we got rid of them, it just means when we get these heavy rain events, the rain's going right into rivers and streams and going straight down. And so we can get real dramatic water level rises. But there's a great book called uh, Eager, mm -hmm. um, the Beaver, that really looks at the historical accounts of what the landscape looked like, particularly in the Midwest and out in the Rockies, um, prior to the extirpation of beavers. And it's amazing how different it was. I mean, our picture like now of the Great Plains uh, is really different from when beavers were here. Um, so it was a much more uh, diverse ecosystem because of all these wetlands all over the place that were scattered and creating different successional stages. So they were really quite quite influential in creating a very, very diverse regional ecosystem and boosting a lot of species richness uh, because of their presence. Yeah. So um, that's interesting that you say that, because in my mind, um, I've, I've never actually thought because I, I live in northern Michigan. Um, I, I don't really often sit around contemplating the Great Plains. But when I do think about the Great Plains, I think about kind of like endless expanses of grass. And I, I, I don't really think about the water aspect of it. So could you go into more of like what the Great Plains would have looked like with the beaver? Well, you know, it's a good question. I don't think I can actually remember because I read this about uh -huh. 10 years ago, but I was okay. Um, but yeah, I just, what I did take away from it was how dramatically different our landscapes were. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah. And I, and I imagine that there is probably a, a great deal of difference in where you live versus the, um, the landscapes of the, uh, uh, the Great Plains. Yeah. Yeah. And even maybe if you're like in the upper peninsula of Michigan or something, it's gonna be different up there. I mean, when you get into forests that are a lot more coniferous based, then beaver activity is not going to be as, as heavy as it is in more hardwood forests because, you know, hardwoods are their preferred winter food supply trees. So you you would actually be surprised. Um, so I don't live in the upper peninsula. I live in the northern lower, but I do go to the upper peninsula a lot. And there's a ton of beavers up there. Good. Um, and 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 it's actually pretty um pretty funny that you say that because um so I engage in eating beavers. Um, I don't, I would never go through and like extirpate and a whole family unit, but maybe I'll have like a few a year. Uh -huh. And um they are uh, very, very tasty animals, but um, I really love them. I would call them my favorite, uh, my favorite animal. And um, I've seen many, many examples of them eating cedar trees and pine trees and uh, things that other people would say that they would never eat, you know. And of course, they um, they obviously prefer aspens and willows. But um, I think when forced to, they will definitely eat whatever's around. Well, they will, but it's a sign that they're, you know, sort of getting, um, they're getting a bit desperate because it's not really yeah. their stuff. So it'd be like us eating something we really could eat, but really probably wouldn't choose to eat. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I get you. Yeah. So um, other than beavers though, like what, what effects would things other animals have on the landscape, like specifically where you're at in New England? Um you know, do, do the movement of deer, do the movement of, you know, elk, things like that, that historically did live in your area, were they going to have like dramatic effects on the land as well? I think they are. And, you know, maybe not as dramatic as beaver, but I'll give you one example of um, a species that had really big impacts. Uh, when I was doing my undergraduate work at the University of New Hampshire back in the late 60s, early 70s, um, 
we are taught that if you went into an oak dominated woodland, you'd never find white pine growing in the understory. And sure enough, every oak dominated woodland we went into, we never found white pine in the understory because, you know, the oak leaf litter restricts germination sites for pine. So mm -hmm. it made perfect sense. Well, um, now you can go into oak forests around here and easily find white pine and a lot of other species you never used to see of trees in the understory in oak dominated woodlands. Uh, because of the change in the population status of one species. So any guess what that might be? White-tailed deer. Uh, good guess, but it's not that. It's oh. turkeys. Oh, turkeys. Turkeys. <laughs> turkeys were reintroduced into New Hampshire in 1969. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having them not be present for, you know, well over basically almost two centuries, uh, People just thought, well, this is the way the forest always looked. But when troops of turkeys go through a forest and they start scratching up the understory to look for, you know, bugs and seeds and acorns and things like that, they create all these germination sites. So we're seeing now turkeys as a huge influence in basically dramatically increasing the diversity of species in the understory of our woodlands uh, that we never would have caught on if they, you know, if, if we never had them here. We just never would have known that. That is amazing. And I'm, I, and I'm sure um, based on some of the other stuff that I know, um, having uh, turkey create better woodlands and more diverse woodlands probably equals more turkeys in the end too, right? Yeah, because now they're uh, obviously allowing species to come in that might not have had as much success that, you know, are going to be good foraging species for them. So sure. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. Um, so what other... What other sorts of things do you do like on a daily basis? Do you help people assess uh, their land and how to improve it and things uh, like that? Sometimes. I mean, most of what I do are public programs, speaking events, things like that. Uh, there's a, I get a lot of requests to take groups out in the field and just, you know, basically interpret what I'm seeing out in the woodlands. And it's not just, you know, interpreting forest histories. It can be looking at really cool, unique, co-evolved interrelationships, uh, that we find out in the natural world that many people don't know about or unique um, growth forms of trees or, uh, you know, cool adaptations of, you know, trees, plants and other organisms out there. So, mm -hmm. you know, as an ecologist, I'm mostly versed in looking at interrelationships. So a lot of that deals with interrelationships. Uh, you know, if they're, you know, like sun leaves or shade leaves and oaks, that's a relationship to growing conditions of the physical environment. If it's, uh, you know, resin blisters on balsam fir, well, that's a, you know, an adaptation to deal with bark beetles. Um, so there's these things that are occurring out there that just aren't random. They're co-evolved interactions that have developed. And, you know, from an ecological perspective, the more co-evolution you have taking place, the more biologically diverse and the more resilient our ecosystems get. Because um, nature's always pushing for organisms to be more energy efficient. You know, there's only so much energy out there. So if an organism develops a strategy adaptation to make it more energy efficient, it gets selected for. But they do that by becoming more specialized, which means their niches grow smaller. And then an ecosystem can host more and more and more species and it builds up a lot of repetition of function and critical functional roles. Like in decomposition, we don't just have, you know, a handful of fungi out there decomposing. We've got hundreds to thousands of species. Mm -hmm. And 
That's where the resiliency comes in, because if any one species goes extinct, the system's fine because it has all these other organisms doing the same functional role. So, wow, yeah, um, that that part is actually uh, really really cool. And I, I have watched uh, one of your videos where you talked a lot about coevolution, and um, one of the cool things that you spoke of was uh, how. Virginia creeper won't won't go to the top of a tree and smother the tree out. It'll stop short of the canopy. Yeah, it's pretty keep, much yeah. on the trunk or on the limbs that don't have leaves, but it would be counterproductive for it to start covering over the <laughs> the leaves and then prematurely kill its host because then it's sort of done itself in. Uh, yeah, in terms of getting a lot of light in a in a forest setting. So, you know. Um, that's what happens. I mean, I'm sure when that relationship first started, it was probably like Eurasian bittersweet, covering up yeah. trees, killing them off. Mm-hmm. But it it's sort of counterproductive from uh, an energy point of view, because I've seen areas in New England where bittersweet has completely killed everything off. I, I know mm-hmm. one polybaker area where it's just a mat of bittersweet vine that's about five feet high. There's nothing else there. All the trees died. They eventually came down. The vines grown over them all. But now if you look at it, you see that it's just twining all over itself, trying to grow up. And it's uh, fruiting and flowering goes way down. And so it's mm-hmm. it's not doing itself a good service by killing off its host trees like that. Yeah. Um, no, this is actually a topic we've been we've been speaking on a little bit over the last few episodes of our podcast. And that is uh, invasive species. And um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is... Um, so I sort of believe in this concept of uh, like, well, let me actually go back and just say that I, I personally believe that we will not ever be able to get rid of all of these invasive species on the landscape. Um, I think that that's actually an impossible task. And, and most of the time it results in us um, poisoning the landscape. However, um, I do think that we should do something to help save native species where they are, right? So yeah, I, um, I, I agree with you completely on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, na- you know, invasives, once they're here, they're here to stay. We don't have the capability to do it. We, you know, So I look at it like triage. If you have a, a site that they're just starting to move into where it's easy to weed, go after them. If yeah. you got sites that have rare and endangered species, make sure you try to keep them out of there. Yeah. And if, if you have the means to work other sites, you can do it. But um you know, eventually uh, we're not going to get rid of them. And the places where they do establish will be the places coevolution will do its work. But, you know, it takes, you know, a thousand years maybe for them mm-hmm. to start really working things out so that the ecosystem starts returning to some level of bio- biotic diversity. Um, yeah. But I'll agree with you completely. I think we just got to be strategic and not go nuts um, try to be like Noah in his ark and, and ferry our native species through until things can work themselves out. So for an yeah. example, what we're seeing today is sort of child's play in a way to what would have happened 3 million years ago mm-hmm. when the Isthmus of Panama formed because North America and South America had been separated for you know over 100 million years. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that land bridge formed and all sorts of species from North America migrated into South America, South American species coming up here. And uh, the the impact of invasives then would have been dramatic. But mm-hmm. three million years later, it's all okay. And all those 
South American species moved up this way are now functional members of our communities and vice versa. So nature's, you know, patient, works things out through time. Uh, and we can do our part by making sure that we get our natives through this uh, until that happens. Yeah. Um, now, I, I have a question for you. Is it feasible to, uh, I mean, maybe not, but could, could people actively select for invasive species that have sort of these uh, trade of these like characteristics that would be like maybe geared better towards coevolution? It's hard to say because we don't, I don't think we can predict exactly how it's all going to work. So let's say like something like Japanese knotweed, which really I think now is the biggest invasive worldwide. In terms, I think of a root perennial, it now has the largest biomass of any root perennial in the world. Mm -hmm. It's in all continents. Um, but, you know, there's a huge energy resource there. All it's going to take is some organism to have some sort of change, a mutation, a change in behavioral strategy, where all of a sudden they start munching on that. Mm -hmm. And then we'll start getting a biological control and things will start working from there to work it out. So I don't know if we can predict which ones would be the best to try to work with to develop that. Um, I guess I just trust nature and letting it play out the way it's going to play out. Yeah, um, that that's another cool concept that I've been uh, seeing a lot lately is the. Um, cool. So over the last couple of years, I've been noting the. Um, autumn olive in my area which uh so I, I in northern michigan autumn olive is pretty persistent everywhere we have uh very sandy soils which autumn olive seems to thrive in and um what i've been noticing over the last few years is more and more uh deer browsing on them and more rabbits eating uh the bark stripping the bark off of the younger ones in the uh and and, and actually like top killing them and um, i was remarking recently that i thought that was a cool adaptation um, it is, yeah. and you're right, and it is, and it, it, there's a there's a resource there, so they can figure out that, well, maybe this isn't the tastiest stuff, but it works for us. Then, yeah, then you start getting now you're getting a process of coevolution taking place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what other kind of things have you been seeing, like maybe in your area, that might be like indicators of a future coevolution? Oh, golly, I mean, well. A, a good one is, I mean, it's not a future one, but it's it just shows how far this can go are um, oak ball galls. So, you know, mm -hmm. leaf galls on, on oaks, you can get the apple gall, which is a solid, really hard, round gall that grows in the underside of oak leaves. The ball gall is hollow and has like actually these little rays of material going to a central area where the larvae exists. Um Studies are showing now that when you look at those ball galls that, you know, when they're growing, they're green. So they're photosynthetic. They're on the underside of the leaf where they don't block the oak's access to sunlight. And studies are showing that those galls produce more energy through photosynthesis that's embedded in them. So any mm -hmm. oak that gets one of these is actually getting an energy boost. Um, and yet when that first started as a brand new ecological relationship is probably a very, very nasty parasite, maybe even, maybe even killed trees. Um, hmm. But that was not a good strategy and coevolution pushed it along now to this mutually beneficial interaction. That's amazing. Um, and how long did you say, or did you say um, that has been around for? I have no idea. I, mean, oh. I think they've been around pretty long. I mean, that's what I'm oh. saying. This okay. takes a pretty long time. So yeah. You know, for example, um, 
Eastern hemlock was throughout its present range in North America about 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Then all hemlock pollen disappears for a thousand years. And then all of a sudden, 4,000 years ago starts coming back. So we got some sort of, you know, pathogen that came in that really took it out. Uh, But like most of these things, this is what's happening with our tree species. I don't think we're going to lose tree species. I think they're going to be decimated dramatically. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there'll be some that, you know, will have resistance and that becomes the breeding population and then they'll return. Um, So, for example... I think since 2012, I've now come across five different stands of American chestnut that are regenerating. And these are really for American chestnut. These have nothing to do with hybrids or anything like that. Yeah. But they had some level of resistance that allows them to encapsulate the fungus and cankers. And they make it to about probably 60 years of age, but they probably had a good 30 years of reproductive time. And since American chestnut has to cross pollinate, to make viable nuts, uh, the offspring should have a higher level of resistance. So generation after generation, they could, should start getting bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually uh, just repopulate. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. The, um, the American yeah. chestnut is a, is a tree that I highly value and um, I'm not in their native range um, yeah. where I'm at, but uh, believe it or not. Um, so there was an insane asylum put into the town that I live in a long time ago. And the guy in charge was extremely interested in planting edible nuts and trees and things, and just like all kinds of diverse trees that don't belong here. And uh, we actually have some American chestnuts growing on the property of that place. And um, it's not an insane asylum anymore because those kind of uh, went out of style, but um, it's now a place where uh, it's like 500 acres of uh in town park for people to walk around in and uh, i teach a lot of foraging classes out there and when i show people the american chestnuts they they go whoa we have those things still (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i mean that's and you're lucky you'll have them for a while because that's a disjunct population so there are like some grand american chestnuts planted out in the great plains and stuff that you know are just isolated and they don't get hit by the blight fungus Mm -hmm. Uh, but you need to <clears throat> to make you know viable nuts and stuff, you need to have a, a population of them that are cross pollinating. Yeah, um, the biggest issue that we face here, um, and and ours do actually have blight. Oh, um, they do. Yeah, they do have blight, but um, the biggest problem that I actually face in gathering the nuts is that the, there's so few of the trees that they're wind pollinated, and um, they don't make that many nuts. And uh, and then the nuts that are there are quickly eaten by squirrels. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So um, is it an overstatement? Because I've uh, I've heard that the American chestnut tree, um, it's been overstated how populated it actually was at one point in time. I wanted to get, get uh, ask an expert here. Um, was there actually like 4 billion, you know, trees or whatever they said? I don't know how many there were. I think in the heart of its range, there are some stands or maybe one out of every four trees was American chestnut. Mm-hmm. Um but it certainly um, was probably not as densely populated as you often hear. But the thing is, you know, they grew to immense size. So they, you know, there are pre-blight photographs of American chestnuts up to 14 foot basal diameters. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for a hardwood tree <laughs> to get that size is hard to imagine. I mean, I, you know, seen dug fir and redwoods and sequoias and stuff at that size. But for a hardwood, it's hard. So I think because of the fact they could get so large and they 
could make such an incredible crop of nuts, uh, they became sort of iconic in American folklore. Yeah. Um, do you do you believe or buy into the concept? And uh, I mean, I personally do, but I want to ask you um, of, of basically kind of like an intentional burning of the understory in these forests so that they would be predominating in, in nut-bearing trees for the native populations that lived here? Uh, certainly native peoples definitely use fire as a management tool. Um, around here in New England, it was used mostly along the riverways um, to clear out areas for garden plots on the mm -hmm. you know, stone-free alluvial rich soils. Uh, in some sites in southern New England, they were burning uh, forests that really had a good amount of white oak, shagbark, hickory, American chestnut to select for those trees and then create understories of things like blueberries. So they had, they were sort of doing permacultural practices. So I think in the right forest communities, it, it can definitely work. And I think, um, you know, a lot of our forests in the United States, particularly as you start getting down into the southeastern United States, the western United States, uh, a lot of those forests were managed for a long time by indigenous people, and they evolved with a fire management regime. Other areas like, you know, up here in northern New England, where I live, fire was pretty much nondescript as a natural disturbance. I mean, just in, and we don't have as many nut trees you get in northern New England, so native people weren't burning like that up here. Um, mm -hmm. But in areas of the, of the continent where they did burn, they created ecosystems that were, you know, did evolve with the presence of fire. Wow. Um, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty amazing. And I mean, do you think that that just comes from observation or do you think that that just uh, came from like some sort of intu intuitive moment from one person or, um, you know, like a natural fire happens and then and then they go, wow, this, the, the game sure did uh, increase around here. Well, you know, I think they were really connected to the natural world in an intimate way. So I'm sure, um, I mean, they know things about the natural world. We still are learning today that they it's written that it's written in some of their stories of things that we've just found out about. So you know, connection between trees and the trees can communicate and things. I mean, these are all pretty recent things for us found out in the last maybe 30 or 40 years. Yeah. People, I think, understood it because they were keen observers. They were out in the natural world solely. I mean, that, that was their home. That was their mother. That was everything. So uh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, they were every bit as observant and smart as we are, but even more keen and tuned into the natural world than I think we are today. Um, so, it, no, it doesn't surprise me at all that they would get it, that, yeah, we can use this as a tool to manage things. Um, yeah. Um, one one classic example of what you just mentioned was that uh, a few years ago, I remember reading that um, they recently found out that prairie dogs cause rain on the great on the great plains and uh and in the stories of uh great plains tribes the uh the prairie dogs were the rain bringers yeah well there you go and <laughs> i didn't know that but i wouldn't doubt it i mean i think so many organisms play roles in ecosystems that we you know i i think um you have to look at an ecosystem in a holistic way that all these organisms are interacting and they're doing things together that um 
wouldn't happen otherwise. And they create these emergent properties and things. So <clears throat> it doesn't surprise me at all that prairie dogs in some way could be influencing weather patterns like that to bring more rainfall. I mean, I, mean, I don't know how they're doing it because I've never heard about this, but it wouldn't surprise me. So apparently, um, according to the research that I read, prairie dogs dig down like, these big elaborate tunnels. And then what that does is it causes a transpiration, mm -hmm. you know, an, ev an evaporation of the water from the from the subsoil into the air, which then causes, you know, rain clouds to form. Oh. And then you, you take those out of the landscape and all of a sudden it becomes this dust bowl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder, yeah. like, I mean, I can get that because if they're going to, you know, like usually evaporation you know, in let's say prairie areas, it probably doesn't get down much more than a few feet. But if they're getting down six feet, seven feet, eight feet and getting down to moist soils, sure, I can make that make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I just think that that's that's very cool. Like you said, like they they had it in their stories, you know, the uh, mm -hmm. the, the prairie dog is the bringer of rain. And then, yeah. and then you know, that that was just like a folk tale, you know, but then we, we you know, with our white lab coats you know we we go in and we go hey you guys were yeah. right yeah. And, and they're like duh <laughs> yeah, right. well i guess so, you know, you've been around observing these things for thousands and thousands of years yeah you get it <laughs> yeah um so earlier on you mentioned that there was some um pretty uh that you teach classes and that you'll go through some pretty elaborate um like symbiotic species that are together um can you name some of them like that that would be of interest well i mean i was saying you know our recent understanding of things like you know uh suzanne simard's work with mycorrhizal fungi mm -hmm. we had no idea i remember when i again did my undergraduate work in unh i was just taught the trees simply compete they're individuals mm -hmm. out there they're competing we know not that's not the case that you know mycorrhizal fungi network all these plants in a forest together and energy nutrients going back and forth. Uh, so yeah, there may be some competition to get in the canopy, but below ground, there is a lot <clears throat> happening that's mutually beneficial. Um, her work has shown that certain times of the year. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Uh, mycorrhizal fungi are extracting energy for paper birch in this study she did in British Columbia and feeding Douglas fir trees, and then that flow is reversed at other times of the year. So all of a sudden, that's like... Yeah. That doesn't look sort of like competition. There's something else mm -hmm. going on. So that's just one, but there's uh, there's so many. I mean, you know, um, if you look at here, I'm, I live in the coast of Maine, so we get a lot of ocean fog. So our trees are just coated in lichens. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've heard arborists say, that, you know, they go into a forest and they see like, uh, uh, or they go into somebody's yard and they see this tree who has you know the crown is declining there's lichens all over the branch they say look at that those lichens are killing the tree and actually that's not what's going on at all the limiting factor for lichens is light they're only biologically active during fog or rain events so light becomes mm -hmm. a premium so wherever there's no leaves that's where they're going to grow because that's where the light is but um lichens get most of their nutrients out of the air 
Mm-hmm. So when they start coating a tree, it's like putting this nutrient layer on the tree. So then during heavy rain, some of that nutrient leaches out as water-soluble fertilizer that goes right down to the ground and fertilizes the roots of the trees. Or if they fall off, they enrich the ground. So trees that get good lichen coatings actually get a boost. They're benefited. Mm. Uh, so trees like red oaks, for example, have almost all of our trees have barks that you know exfoliate. Red oaks have evolved a bark that you you know an alive, healthy red oak you can't remove any bark. It is welded on mm-hmm. in adaptation to attract these lichens. They can get heavy coatings on their trunks in areas where there's a good amount of light. So um, there's just one common one. Yeah, the uh, the lichen thing is pretty interesting. So um, what? When you said that, um, what was killing the trees, though? So if it's not if it it's been, not the lichens. It's not the lichens. So in that case, like a lot of this you see in spruce around here, spruce are having a hard time with climate change and some exotic fungi. So we see that a lot in spruce trees. So it's it's a another agent that's doing it. And then the lichens are just taking advantage of the light that opens up. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um, lichens are really fascinating. And I, I do... I. I appreciate that you said that, that um, some people do, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hear people say like a lichen, they act like it's a predator, you know, it's like stealing the the nutrients from the tree. And I, I will uh, remark that, no, it's actually gathering all of its nutrients from the air. That's right. I uh, mean, they're growing on dead bark. They're not taking anything from the tree. It'd be, again, it would be like, these are long lived co-evolved relationships. It again, doesn't make sense to hurt your host. If you, yeah. Keep your host going. It lives longer. You live longer. You reproduce more. There's more of a resource for your offspring. So, for example, you're talking about chestnut blight. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it only took about 30 years for that blight to pretty much extirpate American chestnut completely. Um, obviously, a really bad outcome for the American chestnut. That's why, you know, as ecologists, we say we shouldn't be bringing species from one part of the world into another because we create these very young ecological interactions that can be very detrimental. But take a look at it from the Fungus's perspective. If you're a host-specific parasite, the worst thing you could do is eradicate your host species. You yeah. do that. You've just gotten rid of your whole population, and it was incredibly energy wasteful. Uh, it would have been much better off to keep their host trees alive, even if they're parasites. They live longer, reproduce more, more of a resource for their offspring. So it only makes sense through time that these co-evolved relationships are going to develop, which uh, makes systems, ecosystems way, way more biologically diverse and resilient. Yeah. Um, so in in regards to the American chestnut, um, you said you didn't think that, uh, or you, you, we weren't talking about hybrids. Um, what do you think about hybridization events between those species? Do you think that's bad or good? Well, I would have, I, I would have lobbied against it. I think we're too hasty in what we do. And we don't mm-hmm. understand the outcome. So, you know, uh, the oriental chestnuts are being hybridized are basically understory species that never could get the the sort of stature of the American chestnut. Yeah. The American chestnut will come back. But what worries me, there's going to be enough of these hybrids. And now we're talking about genetic manipulations and stuff that uh, who knows what that species will become. And we I don't yeah. think we can predict. So... I'd say we don't really have the wisdom to understand this. I think it's more or less, if we find resistant chestnuts, we should have worked with them. It would take longer, but um, I don't think we should be so hasty. I think that, uh, especially when we don't understand all the outcomes of what we're doing, I just, I don't think, I think it's blind to just rush in like that. 
Yeah. Um, and, and as far as like, uh, oh, I, I, I wanted to mention the, um, the chestnut that, uh, the genetically modified one, I think that got, uh, they put the kibosh on that one. I think they're not That's doing cool. that. I anymore. haven't heard that. And that's really good. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, yeah, it, it worries me because you create these genetic new forms and we don't know how they're going to interact in ecosystems and you can then lose your original form, which is yeah. not good. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about oaks. Um, oaks, as as I'm sure you're aware, you know, at one point in time, kind of diverged into red oaks and white oaks. And then as I've, um, as I've gleaned from the information, they sort of, uh, they evolved like, I think, five million years ago in Colorado or something. I, I, I have told, and then sort oh, of made the, yeah. They're way older than that. Uh, yeah. oaks, okay. the, the oaks are in the Fagaceae. This is the beech yeah. family. It's one of our oldest families of broadleaf trees. The only family that's older are magnolias. So it's a family evolved in equatorial tropics about, I don't know, over 100 million years ago. Oh, okay. I now when they got up here in North America, probably not until that land isthmus formed that they mm -hmm. came up on. So, in other words, it might have been three million years ago they made it into here. Um, but you know, they still have uh sort of some of their tropical attributes. So, for example, um they have marcescent leaves. These are leaves that when the they die, they hang on the tree, which is when you're up north where there's a lot of snow or ice storms, that's not a good strategy. You can really <laughs> capture a lot of weight and get breakage events. But, you know, all the early members of that family um, were uh, broad-leaved evergreens because they grew mm -hmm. in equitable tropics. And so if we go down to the southern United States, we have live oaks that are broad-leaved yeah. evergreens. And if you go down in the, you know, in South America now, we still have beaches that are broad-leaved evergreens. But the beech, the oak, the chestnut, are all in that family. They all have marcescent leaves because they're sort of more recent arrivers up here and they never mastered the art of dropping them. Wow. Okay. Uh, it's, it's so funny to think of uh, three million years as being recent. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you have to look at it in perspective of what's going on historically, but yeah, it's all for yeah. context, I guess. Yeah, no, I get, I get you for sure. Um, but uh the question that I wanted to ask you, though, was about um, so red and white oaks, you know, they inhabit these different groups. Um, what what makes them um, like they can both be in the same site? And you were talking about earlier co-evolution and energy efficiency. So what is specifically like the difference between like why a white oak will be where a white oak is, and why a red oak will be where a red oak is? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, here I can I'll just have to plan my knowledge in New England here. Uh, white oaks are more southerly in range distribution. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we have red oaks up here in coastal Maine. Uh, white oaks don't make it up here at all. So mm -hmm. white oaks predominantly have done better on, in New England, south-facing pretty hot, dry sites. And they're more fire-adapted. That flakier bark is a more fire-adapted bark than the, than the bark of red oak. So they do better on these sites that are drier, warmer, uh, things like that, where red oak uh, is better on, you know, sort of more moderate sites in terms of moisture and stuff. At least that's the way it is here in New England. Now, I should say <clears throat> both of them have these shade leaves and sun leaves. I think I mentioned that earlier. 
Um, if you go out in an oak woodland, whether it's white oak or, or red oak, it doesn't really matter. If you look on the ground, you're going to see, you know, some oak leaves that are pretty small and others that might be three to four times the size. Mm -hmm. And um, the small ones usually are more deeply notched in the midrib. They are more leathery because they have a heavy cuticular coating. And these are the sun leaves. They are leaves that hang out in the top of the tree in full sunlight. Uh, they have small size and that heavy coating to protect them from desiccation. Mm -hmm. But the deep notches allowed a lot of light to infiltrate in the interior leaves. And so what the oaks are doing, they've been around a long time, so they've mastered a lot of this stuff, is they're creating a microenvironment where their shade leaves, those big interior leaves, can do the bulk of the photosynthesis without moisture loss. So that's why, at least here in New England, when we get on dry sites, oaks will predominate over any other broadleaf hardwood because they can do about 30% more photosynthesis because of this leaf dimorphism. So, but wow. we're seeing white oaks more on drier, warmer sites than red oaks. That's yeah. fascinating. Um, and then what species do you have in Maine? Michigan has 10 species of oak and then Northern Michigan's got, I think, three. <laughs> well, here in, I mean, I'm right where I am on, on Mount Desert Island. We have two species of oak. We've got red, red oak and scrub oak. But okay. in New England, if you get down to southern New England, then you're going to get a whole mess more. Because you're going to get, you know, white oaks and pin oaks and scarlet oaks. And uh, we can get some burr oaks out in the western part of New England. So it depends where you are. But up here, I mean, I'm in down east coastal Maine. So we're getting, I'm up at about the 45th parallel. So it's uh, it's getting shorter growing seasons we get a lot more cool conditions particularly with ocean fogs and the oaks just don't yeah well yeah you're um so you you say you're at the 45th parallel that's uh that's basically exactly where i am in michigan yeah um, yeah uh, we're we're on you know uh the gulf of maine which is a pretty cold body of water although it's warming dramatically fast i mean yeah um, it used to be that it would be rare for it to get much above 50 degrees in the summertime. Now we're getting it up in some areas close to 60, which is a dramatic warming. That's happened just like in the last 20 years. So you, it was, uh, you've lived there for a long time? No, we, we bought a place up here uh, 10 years ago and then moved up here permanently two years ago. Okay. Um, but yeah. you've been, but you've been there for a long time. So, um, it, it would not get above 50 degrees in the summer? In the water of the ocean, yeah. Oh, 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 in the yeah, water yeah, of the yeah. ocean. Oh, oh. Yeah. No, not, not in the air here, but out in the, <laughs> out in the Gulf of Maine waters. Yes, no. It, yeah, no. Okay. It would be uh, pretty, pretty tough if it was just 50 degrees at the warmest time of year. <laughs> okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah, all right. I was uh, I was thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a great retirement place. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the... Yeah, so here where I live in particular, I live in Traverse City, Michigan. Um, we we actually, uh, I remark about this all the time. Southern Michigan, if you go east of us, is uh, colder, even if you go south. So like mm -hmm. Chicago, Chicago is a much colder place than we are here. And that's because I live right on Lake Michigan and the wind uh -huh. it just keeps this moderate all year. Yeah, no, it, it's amazing, like, you know, again, how big lakes, oceans, things like this can really change, uh, change the fiscal environment quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, in changing gears here, what, uh, what got you into all this stuff? 
Well, I think <clears throat> um, it's it's an unusual story. Talk about it now that my mom passed away. But when I was a young boy, the age of four, she developed mental illness. My older siblings were off at school. So I was at home alone with her. And it got to be scary at times. So I would just head out into the woods across the street. Um, and I felt comfortable being there. It felt sort of like a sanctuary for me. So at a very young age, I really bonded with just being out in the woods. Of course, as a young boy, I didn't have much respect for it. I can remember ripping up huge stands of skunk cabbage to try to make the neighbors a disagreeable smell. I, you know, <laughs> it did, you know, thing that boys do, which is not the best thing sometimes, but I, I still bonded with that woodland. And I write about it in one of my books that when I was 12, uh, and this was in the spring of my sixth grade year, stayed after school to, in a pickup baseball game, started walking home from the school through the woods. It was a half mile walk through the woods to get to my house and came across this uh, new dirt road that had been punched through the woods, came to a clearing where there was a stand of red maples I just loved because they had this bark that looked like shag bark hickories and they'd all been pushed down. And me and my two friends who lived on the same street right across from this woods were aghast. And so uh, we monkey wrenched that bulldozer. I'd never even heard of the term at that time because this was like 19, what, 63, I guess. Mm -hmm. But we picked up rocks. We smashed all the windows. We poked <laughs> holes for leather seats. We pried off hydraulic hoses with sticks. We pushed gears, rocks in every gear we can find. We even took dirt from the exposed tracks and dumped it in the gas tank. Oh my God. And, uh, you know, I, and I guess we really did some damage because the police really were investigating this. And I remember uh, during true confessions one time at a Thanksgiving dinner, when I was in my forties, uh, I mentioned this and my parents just blanched because I guess they've been interviewed quite a bit about the police and saying, Oh no, Tommy would never do anything like that. But, <laughs> but anyways, uh, you know, then I became an adolescent and, you know, sort of my interest changed, but, I did. Um, I was good in in high school in math and science. My dad said you'll make a great engineer, and I hadn't even thought about what I wanted to do. I said okay, so I went uh, to Johns Hopkins University to study industrial engineering. It only took me a month to realize that is not what I wanted to do. So for the first time in my life, I started thinking, and I knew it had to be something with forests. So that was the beginning of my trajectory uh, into basically being an ecologist. Wow, <clears throat> and. Um... As an ecologist, what is your uh, favorite thing that you get to do? The favorite thing I get to do? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wander in incredible landscapes. I, You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I was trained to be a research ecologist, and I did it. I could do research. But I quickly learned that it wasn't my predilection. I didn't want to stay stuck in a point just collecting data. I, You know, I'd be up in the Rockies and you know, come across a mountain lion track and I'd start backtracking it. And I don't know how many days of research I lost because I got distracted and started wandering. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I wasn't lost. Not all those wander are lost, but I'm a wanderer and I just wander, yeah. look. And I think that's what allowed me to develop my abilities of interpreting forest histories is um, I've developed a really good eye for seeing differences in patterns and processes and once i see a difference it starts me thinking about what's going on and i and i pursue that so um but you wouldn't do that if you were stuck just doing you know sort of quantitative research you wouldn't see those changes you wouldn't see it on a grander larger scale 
so I guess that's, you know, why I became an educator, because I found I love teaching. I could do the research, but it didn't it didn't tickle me. Yeah, um, I, too, am an insane wanderer. I have I, I have I have it in me and I have I have three kids and a family. And uh, prior to having all these kids, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of time I used to just wander just what what's over here what's over there you know know, and um, just kind of go where places like most people don't want to go I seem to be really drawn towards wetlands and Mm -hmm. so uh, really cool yeah yeah wetlands are amazing and um, what so what what do you think that is Uh, what makes people like you and me just want to like wander I, I don't know if I can say exactly why. Maybe, it, I mean, I, that's what I did when I was four years old. I was wandering through those woods. Maybe it's just something that I picked up. I don't know why, but I just know that that's my predilection. I mean, I've, um, for example, I've, I taught a, you know, a, a desert ecology class uh, at Antioch uh, Graduate School for many, many years down in Mexico and uh, bordering Arizona. And I'd always intentionally give one day off as a day mm-hmm. for people just to wander on their own through the desert and not have wow. any restrictions in that. And I would take off for the whole day and I'd go huge distances in this. Uh, we'd always do this in the Pinacate, which is this incredible desert landscape in Mexico. And um, truly, it was a wilderness landscape until the early 1900s. Hardly any white people had ever been in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said Adam had lived in there, but in very small population, because it's a very extreme place to live. But, um, you know, I'd go out wandering and come across these incredible footpaths that were probably at least 10,000 years old in the desert. Holy moly. And actually, there's a debate that some people are saying they're 35,000 years old based on desert varnish of the rocks that have been pushed to the sides and came across huge Itaglio, you know, uh, things out there of wild animals and stuff the native people had done. And it's just like, I'd see these things. And I just became hooked. I just had to keep going like you in the wetland. Just what's, what's over there. What's what I'm going to find. And um, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so uh, a desert, uh, I had no idea that you were this desert expert, but that brings me up to uh, another question I have for you that um, is it true that like, when we look at a desert, what we're seeing is, um, is actually like, the last remnants of what was once like this, like really uh, flourishing landscape, like, uh, it, like it's changed dramatically over the, you know, 40, 50 years I've been going down there regularly. I mean, you know, for example, in the Pinacate, which I think has one of the most diverse floras that I know of in the Sonoran desert, um, you know, there's be saguaro cacti, sunita cacti, desert lavender, uh, brittle bush, all these desert for all these amazing desert plants. And you go down there nowadays and they're almost all really hard to find. Uh, so it's taken off and it's just the droughts down there are getting so, so severe and the temperatures are getting so hot uh, because this is a volcanic landscape that has black cindery substrates. So, mm-hmm. You know, surface temperatures down there are probably getting up 180 degrees or more. And, you know, it just, it's really changing it dramatically from what used to be a very, very lush, very diverse desert ecosystem to one now that's very, very different. How do we, um, how do we help that? 
I, I don't know if we can at this point. I think this is the sort of things that will have to work themselves out through time. Okay. Uh, you know, what's happening is luckily there are in that region of North America, there are mountains. And so deserts are moving up slope, sort of the way, mm -hmm. you know, other ecosystems that are in mountains are doing it. So I think those can become refugia. And then, you know, as, and I'm sure that, you know, what we're seeing with climate change will start reversing course, you know, probably sometime in the next few hundred to maybe a thousand years. And uh, they'll return. They'll come back down again and things will probably start moving back out again. So, um, yeah, I, I have hope that in the long term, it'll be fine, but you're going to see a lot of changes in the short term. Yeah. I saw a video recently of a, uh, a guy that was, um, he went to visit a paper birch stand that was uh, native to an area, but it was isolated by hundreds and hundreds of miles. And, um, that, that actually reminds me of what you just said, because, uh, you know, as climate changes, we're going to, we're going to start to see these, these populations move into these areas and they're going to colonize new places. And um, what will end up probably happening is we'll, over time that climate will shift back and then we might have like a remnant population stuck somewhere. Yeah. You know? it's, it's possible. I mean, like if you go up uh, to Cape Breton Island on the North shore of Cape Breton Island, you get into ecosystems that are just like being down in Pennsylvania they are disjunct because during the Hipsy Thermal about 6,000 years ago, it was a much, much warmer climate and everything migrated up and then it cooled off and it all restricted. And they're right on the shore by a really warm current. So they were able mm -hmm. to exist, but they're like, it's white oaks way up there that are really disjunct. I mean, they're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where you can find any of the white oaks. Wow. Yeah. Um, th so this brings up another question for me. Um, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the Black Hills, and then um, and then the West Coast and Alaska, they all have um, what would it be uh, uh, thimbleberries. Uh -huh. uh, and, and, and thimbleberries, what what causes a, a native population to be you know that disjunct? You know, you have Alaska, yeah. the Black Hills of South Dakota, and then the Upper <laughs> Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah. So again, I think probably, you know, probably I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know this for sure because I don't know their ecology, but it's probably going back to the Hipsy Thermal where their ranges were probably much bigger and maybe not so disjunct. And mm -hmm. now they're restricted in these little pockets. Um, you know, we've seen the same thing with, you know, other species uh, like the white oak I mentioned. So that would be my guess. I don't know the full story, though, of them. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty fascinating um, with thimbleberries because uh, they're they're all the rage in the UP. You know, every every summer, you know, you get all these people going out and picking thimbleberries, and then um, you know, meanwhile, they're largely pretty much ignored in Alaska, and <laughs> you know, because they're just like this big sour raspberry. You know, that's right. And you have lots of like things like incredible blueberries and yeah. bilberries and other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what, what other things are you getting? Uh, we're, we're kind of coming up here on an hour. I just want to say, um, like how can people follow you? How can people sign up for courses? Like, uh, what things are you getting into? Well, I, I don't have a website intentionally because we get asked, my, my wife is my business manager and we get asked, we get way more requests than we can handle anyway. So we don't advertise it, but, um, 
people can go to uh, Antioch University and find my website and get my email if they're saying, are you doing anything in this area? I mean, I the last thing I did was actually, I was scheduled to go up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and then the pandemic hit. So I ended up doing a Zoom program uh, oh, wow. uh, for people in Michigan. And I they said, we're going to get you back, and I'm waiting to see if they will. But if I get that way, I'll be sure to let you know, Clay, and then you can yeah. we'll know. Oh, I would I would die for that opportunity, Tom. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, and then and then is is uh, New England Forest? Is that the only um, videos that people can find of you online? There are probably some others, but those <laughs> those are the ones that I think are the are the best. I mean, Ray Aslan, who's the filmmaker, and I, I mentioned this to you before we got going recording. He he had retired, and this just became a hobby. But he's gotten good at it, and his stuff has taken off. So. Yeah, pretty much, you know, the stuff on interpreting forest history, between the forest and landscape, co-evolution, uh, Ray did the best stuff on that. Okay. Was... And then um, your uh, your books, you have how many so far? Uh, well, that I've solely written six. There's a there's a seventh book that was jointly written by me and another person. Okay, um, great. Well, I, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Tom. I, as mentioned, I think you're and inspiration to all of us uh wandery people out there <laughs> Good. And, uh, that's like a that's like a clan kinship you know <laughs> yeah yeah and um yeah i hope that everybody listening goes out and uh gets gets one of your books and uh takes some time to just see what's out there i mean i personally believe that it does help us with foraging and hunting which is why i had you on the podcast um, well it, it, i mean it, you if you start doing the work I'm doing, you you start seeing things in uh, in a greater holistic way, which I think would be helpful because you start seeing yeah. patterns and all of a sudden those patterns you can think about, well, I bet this is relating to this and this and this, which could directly relate to foraging and stuff. So yeah, uh, it makes sense to me. Um, well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, maybe in a year or so, we'll uh, catch up again and see if you got anything else going on. All right. Well, thanks, Clay. It's delightful being on. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.